Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. For those who might be new, my name is Dave, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the pastors here at Harvest, and I'm going to be giving the sermon this morning. We are in the, the beginning part of a series, a 10-message series, on the parables of Jesus. These are stories of the kingdom which Jesus told that were like stories that functioned like analogies to help us understand in simpler, more accessible ways what this kingdom of God is supposed to be. And this morning, we're going to look at, at the first parable, and it's the tale of two debtors. So I want to invite you to look at the word of God with me. We're going to read from Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love is shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's the word of God. That is one of the most powerful encounter accounts in the New Testament, I believe. And whenever I read that story in the Gospel of Luke, um, I am transported back to a room on the campus of Trinity International University uh, in August of 1984, the day I was saved. And what that woman is going through, I once felt in the most powerful way I wonder if you have a story like that of a time when you encountered Jesus Christ and that encounter completely shaped and marked and changed you. 
Church and Christianity are about a lot of things. But at its heart, at its core, it is about that. It is about somehow encountering Jesus and being forever changed by that encounter. You know, there are two kinds of stories in the world. There are fictional stories that capture our imagination, and then there are true stories that capture the drama of real life. And sometimes the true stories are even more amazing than the fictional ones. Just want to take a poll just to make sure, first of all, you're awake with me. And second, I just want to kind of get this idea. How many of you like fiction better? And how many of you just are a sucker for a true story? You just love true stories. All right. All right. My dad is definitely in the true story camp. What I love about this particular text is that we get both kinds of stories. We have one of the most compelling true story accounts, but buried in that true story is a fictional parable which underscores the true meaning of what's happening in that real world story. Jesus happens to be the guest of honor at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. Now, you have to understand the Pharisees weren't all totally wicked guys. They were very religiously zealous. They loved God in their own way, and they wanted to see Israel restored to a faithfulness and a morality in God that they had lost. And so they were pushing hard for the restoration of God to be a dominant figure in Israelite life. A Pharisee named Simon, and we have no reason to suspect or believe for sure that he had negative intentions here, but he invites Jesus to be the guest of honor at a small dinner banquet at his home. And it was often the practice that after a guest speaker had preached at the synagogue, a prominent member of the town would invite that speaker to their home and serve a dinner in their honor. And it was a custom of that day that when an important or wealthy person had a dinner banquet, they would leave the doors open and the invited guests would have spaces at the table to recline at the meal and they were the guests of honor and the invited people. But it was also the practice that anyone else who was curious or hungry could just walk in and as long as they stayed to the fringes of the room, they could watch and listen in on what was going on at the party and if the host was particularly generous, they would also be served some morsels that were left over from the table. And so in that way, the common people got to observe what life was like among the rich, famous, and important. And so there was no difference. And so it's no surprise then that there are all kinds of people in Simon's house at the time, a mixture of invited guests and uninvited common folks who are just there to maybe celebrity gaze and get a nice little snack. Then all of a sudden a woman pops out from the periphery and she starts walking towards the guest of honor. Now, the uninvited guests were welcomed, but they were expected to stay quiet and on the edges of the party and not make their presence particularly felt. But here's this woman approaching the guest of honor. This is really audacious. What makes it worse is she's not just any woman. She's that woman. The woman that everybody in town knows is a shady woman with a reputation and a past. I've met people who would identify themselves with this woman very deeply. They said, I did things in my life. My life took a really bad turn, and I became that person that everyone knew by my reputation, by my personal history of what I'd done and how I'd chosen to live my life. Now, because this is a religious figure as the guest of honor, 
I'm sure the people, and especially Simon, the host, is horrified because now everyone's going to be talking about the dinner party he threw where that woman approached his guest of honor. And not only does she just come up to him and say, you know, do you have a nickel to spare? Or could I have a little advice? Or could you bless me? She does more than that. She does something very intimate. She falls at his feet and is just sobbing. When, when it says she's weeping, the Greek word is the same word you use for like just this torrential downpour of rain. It was raining tears from her face onto his feet. And his feet became so wet with the tears. I mean, I remember the day I got saved. I cried for almost a couple hours straight. My head was empty. I was thirsty when I was done. My body emptied itself of all the moisture fell out of my eyes. And there was this giant dark spot on the carpet in front of me. And like I've told you before, unbroken train of snot connecting my nose to the carpet. It's like that. She just drenched his feet with her tears. And it got so wet, she started to get embarrassed because the dirt from his feet were running off in mud. And, it's, and so she unbinds her hair, which is a scandalously intimate gesture. The Talmud, which is the Jewish civil and ceremonial law, allowed a man to divorce his wife simply because she unbound her hair in front of other men. That's how personal, how intimate a gesture that was. So most of the time, women had her hair, their hair bound up. But when you let her go, you know like those shampoo commercials? Like this, and she goes like this, and it's just all over. And you're like, oh, that produces an effect in a man to see that long, flowing hair. And everyone's like, oh, my gosh. Not only is she like all over his feet, She just undid her hair, and what is worse, she's using her hair like a rag to wipe his feet. And It's hard for me to convey to us in North America in 2013 just how uncomfortable a scene this was. I mean, we're talking about awkward where your skin crawls. Bugs are under your skin. You just, what is happening? And everyone is just in the middle bringing food to their mouth, and they're staring, they're going... Look at this. What is this? And it is so uncomfortable. Jesus and this woman are locked in this encounter where it's like for them, the rest of the room isn't even there. They're not aware of the rest, but everybody else in the room is freaking out. The only person who was not scandalized by what was happening in that room was Jesus himself. The one person for whom everybody else was shocked on his behalf, he's the only person not freaking out. See, for Jesus, that woman's behavior and that encounter perfectly captured the whole reason he was on the planet to begin with. He was in lots of houses, in lots of parties, at lots of dinner tables. He, like any of us, had experienced the full range of human life. But every now and then, you enter a room or get into a situation that reminds you, deep in your core, this is why I'm alive. This is the whole reason I draw breath and I stand on this planet. This is why I was made. And for Jesus... Out of all these parties he had to go to, out of all these people he had to meet, this woman captured for his heart why he was here, his life's mission. Look what he, and this this piece of art that I found, I think just captured something for me. Maybe it does nothing for you. 
but it captures something of the intimacy of that moment for this woman. She didn't care about the scandal she was going to have following her. She didn't care about the threat of someone kicking her out of this house. She was lost in the moment of embracing the feet of someone to whom she owed everything in her life. And this is what Jesus says later on in the Gospel of Luke about his own mission in this world. For the Son of Man, he says, referring to himself, came to seek and to save the lost. Not those who think that by their own account and their own merit are close to God, but it was a woman like this that Jesus says of himself, here's why I've come to the world. He had come for people like her, and the way she was responding to him perfectly captures the heart, the response that God has always been looking for from all of us. When he says, worship me, I don't believe God is looking for grand gestures of sacrifice or hours and hours and hours spent building up my knowledge of him. Those things are fine. They have wonderful value in our lives. But I think this woman completely lost to herself, blind to the eyes and the scorn of others, completely absorbed in Jesus at that moment. I think it's that kind of gratitude overflowing into love. That's the kind of worship God has always longed for. I think that's the way anybody who is in this room as a parent knows, even if you're emotionally constipated as a parent, even if you've never really been able to show love to your kids, maybe because your daddy never hugged you, so you don't know how to hug your kids. Who knows? Maybe you're like that. You're, you're like, there, there, son. You know, you pet him like a dog, and that's the most you can manage. But in your heart, you know how you feel. You wish you were different. You wish you could be more free because when your children run up to you, Daddy, and they jump and they hug you, in that moment as they're just clinging like you're a life preserver and they're drowning in the ocean, at those moments you feel just for a minute, this is love. It's why we had children, to love them and to be loved by them. When your kids hug you and they're like, good night, and and you feel that and you're like, okay, I will house you and feed you, but what is this that we have here going on? Are you a tenant in my building? Or are you my child? And I think the heart of every parent longs for that deep embrace. It is the kind of worship God has always wanted from us. He doesn't simply say, don't worry, God, I'm still on your team, man. Don't worry. High five. He wants from us what this woman was doing in that room. Now, just because, um, just because everybody's quiet doesn't mean that there's nothing going on in the room. The shocked and awkward silence was also uh, paralleling a lot of stuff people were saying in their own heads. And what Luke records for us is that Simon was thinking something without saying it at that very moment. And here's what he's thinking. Uh, Shoot, I forgot to put the verse up, but here's what it says. When Simon the Pharisee who had invited him saw this whole thing happening, he said to himself, isn't that where most of our judging takes place? We don't have the courage to say anything, so we just kind of go, 
And we say it to ourselves because that's how courageous we are. And he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, meaning partly he had invited Jesus because he had heard the rumors that this is a prophet, a modern-day prophet, and who wouldn't want a prophet in their house? And so he brings Jesus into his house and goes, but if this guy really were a prophet, then duh, wouldn't he at least be able to read the signs in the room? We're all shocked, we're staring. Does he have no idea what kind of woman this is? Even if you didn't know her, you might know what kind of person she is by the way she carried herself and dressed and all of that. And so they're looking, going, if you really were a prophet, then you would at least think you would understand what kind of woman this is. See, just because we don't say things doesn't mean we don't have strong opinions. We have very, very strong opinions about everything and everyone. Imagine the shock in Simon's heart when as he's thinking this, Jesus goes, well, hey, let me answer that, Simon. I have something to tell you. He's like, did this dude just read my mind? Did you ever meet someone you thought could read your mind? I knew someone like that, and I didn't like when this person prayed for me. Because <laughs> I'm like, uh, hold on. Before I go and get that person to pray for me, i got to clean up my act for like a day, maybe two, get a buffer of righteousness. You know, that superstitious idea. And Simon's like, well, hold on. I was thinking this privately. Now he's going to directly address what I was thinking. Maybe he is a prophet after all. And here's what Jesus says. Can I, uh, can I tell you a story, Simon? And here's a story he tells him. There are two men, two people, who owed money to a particular money lender. One of them owed about a year and a half's wages. Call it fifty to 75000 bucks. And another owed him about two months' wages, okay? <clears throat> Maybe 10000 bucks or less. The amount is unimportant, but here's what he says. Neither one of them had the money to pay this guy back. And for no apparent reason, just because he was that kind of guy, he forgave their debts free and clear. The word that, that Jesus uses here for forgiving their debts is not the normal accounting term you would use for debt cancellation. It was a word based on the root word charis, which means grace. In other words, he wasn't just canceling the financial debt. He was, out of graciousness, releasing them from their burden. I don't know if it's a mortgage or credit card. How many of you guys are carrying any debt right now? Let me see a show of hands. Raise them as high as you got. When you write that check, you know that pain. Raise it high. This is the one time you can identify yourself. Look around at the people not raising their hands and ask them for money. These are ballers. They got their stuff together. Or the lion, okay? Now, those of you who raise your hand, how many, raise your hand if you love your debt. It just warms your heart to have all this money you owe. That sucks. It's a serious problem. I, I really can't stand being in debt. That doesn't mean I don't keep digging myself in. I seem to be able to do that. But debt has always been a problem. For those who have an overwhelming debt, it becomes the defining problem of their life. The giant boulder from under which they can never seem to squeeze themselves out. For these two guys, when the debt was forgiven, it was more than a financially good day. It was as if they had a new lease on life and suddenly they can breathe again. Why does he use the metaphor of a debtor in this story as he's trying to confront the judgmental spirit in Simon's heart? 
because it was common in Jewish thinking to equate sin with a debt that we owed to God. God gave us freedom. God gave us guidance through the law. He gave us the ability, the capacity to make choices for him, and he's provided good things for us. So when we use our freedom to rebel against him, then Jewish thinking was right. It represents a debt that we owe to God. Much in the same way that you children will owe a debt to your parents who are faithful to you if after everything they've done for you, you go and throw away your life in foolish decisions. Now, that doesn't mean you can't recover from that, but there is a certain kind of indebtedness we feel when we are given something and we waste it. We misuse it. We hurt others with it. And so he's using the analogy of a debtor to show, listen, everyone looking at this woman knows she has a debt owed to God. Her indebtedness is very easy to see, but he's using this metaphor to show Simon, do you realize, Simon, that you also are a debtor? See, Simon was an influential religious leader in his community. He's the kind of person others turn to for spiritual guidance. And parents held guys like Simon up and say, you should become like him when you grow up. And so it's understandable that a guy like Simon would look at himself, would look at this woman and say, compared to her, I'm going to do all right in front of God. Compared to that, I'm actually doing pretty good. You know, just don't you love when you see a bad grade from your kids and then they're answers, yeah, but everyone else did really bad too. Did you just say that with your mouth? What did you think was going to happen when you said that? So is, is that what we're doing now? Is we're comparing ourselves to everyone else? But that's in fact what all of us do. I say, listen, there are some issues. Yeah, I know, but come on. Look at the rest of the world. I'm doing all right. And he looks at Simon and says, this is at the heart of why I have such a problem with you religious leaders. Because you look at a woman like this and you see only her indebtedness and you don't realize that you also are a debtor before God. See, in this story, the debtors are powerless and weak. They owe something legitimately. They got all the benefit out of what they borrowed. They're living in the house they bought with the money they took. But they have no power to pay it back. Let me ask you a question. When you meet someone who should do better, but they are powerless to do better, how does that usually make you feel? Be honest. I've told you about this a thousand times. Why can't you get it right? How many times do you have to have this conversation? Really? Again? Come on! How do you feel when you encounter someone in your life who doesn't seem to have the power, is too weak to do the right that they know they should? I know how I feel. I know how most of us feel. There's a, a point at which we hit our breaking point. We said, that's it. I'm so done. I, it's over. Your weakness ticks me off. Your powerlessness offends me. Get it together or get lost. Anybody who has kids knows you have been taken to that place at least once or twice. 
Really? We're going to talk about this again? If you don't have kids, maybe it wasn't so long ago your parents just said that to you. Come on, please. But the money lender in this story who has all the power looks at the powerlessness and the weakness of his debtors. And instead of anger and frustration, it evokes compassion. He says, you can try all you want, but you're never going to be able to pay this back. And I wonder if some of us realize that the besetting weaknesses in our own character are perhaps things we're going to have plague us till the day we die. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe people can and do change. I do believe that in a number of areas in any human life, you're going to experience significant growth and transformation because of the power of God. But I also know that as I'm getting older, and I'm sure people older than me will tell you, at the end, you have some areas of great victory and growth, but for the most part, you don't change as much as you think you're going to change. That a big part of maturity is to learn to accept your weakness and the weakness of others because that's why we have the gospel. That's why we need the good news of grace is that we don't say, I will love you when you get your junk together. We say, I love you even though you're imperfect because I was loved by God when I was very imperfect. This is the gospel, is that when we're confronted with the powerless futile weakness of others, we also see the weakness that has imprisoned us. And we understand that our faithful God did not despise our weakness, but released us from it. It is because of that freedom that we might actually have a fighting chance to grow. Jesus turns to this woman and he says to Simon, do you see this woman? And I think it was more than the setup for the next sentence. I think part of what he's saying to Simon is, I know you think you see her. You see only one layer of her. You see what anybody sees. But you're supposed to be a religious leader of Israel. Can you not see past her reputation and the incredibly audacious, socially inappropriate way she's behaving right now? Do you see what's actually happening inside of her at this moment, Simon? Do you understand what she's doing to me? And do you understand that what she's doing to me is what I have wanted every person I have ever met to do to me and to God? She is worshiping me, Simon. And you are a religious leader of Israel. And when is the last time you worshipped God like her? When's the last time you just lost it? Listen to what he says. And this is normally really poor etiquette when you're the guest in someone's house and you start to critique the way they're hosting. Have you ever been a dinner guest and you're like, wow, that wine is really cheap. Um, would you mind if I went out to the car and brought my own private stash of good wine? Um, wow, do you, you don't vacuum much. <laughs> do you say stuff like that when you're a guest in someone's home? Of course you don't. Please don't do that at our house because it's just how it is. Okay. <clears throat> He says to her, and he says to Simon, I came into your house, but you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. 
You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Now, you've got to understand, contrary to what some others have taught, I don't believe Simon, as the host, was obligated to give the kisses and the oil. He was obligated, as a good host, to put some water out, and usually a servant would wash the guest's feet. But the point that Jesus is making here is not to contrast, Simon, you stink as a host. You are a failure in hospitality. That's not the point at all. He's saying, look, I'm not trying to embarrass you as a host. What I'm trying to show you is, I'm a guest in your house, but it's this woman doing all the honoring of me. What he's drawing attention to is not that she's a better host than he was, but that the way she is embracing him is the way we embrace people we're trying to honor. He's trying to draw attention to the way she's worshiping. She is oblivious to what else is happening in the room, and she is lost in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so he says, therefore I tell you, Her sins, which are many, are forgiven for or because she loved much. Now, be careful how you understand that. She wasn't forgiven because she loved much. The grammar is a little tricky here, but the true meaning is this. It's because she was forgiven much that this expression of love and gratitude is pouring out of her. And that's why he says, but listen, the one who is forgiven little only loves a little. The reaction you have to God is directly proportional to what you believe God has done for you. Do you realize that most people, many people, like Simon, don't realize we are debtors? Instead, what we believe is that the world owes us something. I had plans in this world. I'm entitled to more than what I got. I I have endured much, and you know what? The world owes me. And you know who else owes? I think God owes me better than this. When is he going to start showing up? I've been there. I'm not just saying that about someone else. I've said those exact words. You owe me, God. Have you ever said those words? Have you at least felt those feelings in your heart? that not only do you not recognize your status as a debtor, but you believe that others owe you a debt. Even God owes you something. And if that's where you stand, then your sense of being forgiven and freed by Him is going to be very little indeed. Whoever makes little of his own sin will consequently make very little of the mercy and grace of God. And if our first response to God is not gratitude, then we will remain spiritually immature until that day. You know, growing up in the church, I was always told that I should love God. You should love God. Love God. Don't we love God, children? We should. And we would cheer. We love Jesus. And the whole time we're going, ah, man. You know, most of the time we're saying this stuff. Like a cold, wet, dead fish in my heart. All right. Love God. How do you do something like that? How do you love God? And I kept being told that I should love him. 
But what the church really didn't tell me as I was growing up is why I should love him. They just assumed there is God, love him. And it wasn't until August of 1984 that I finally understood why I should love God. Until I recognized that I was a debtor, it was impossible for me to love God because I was too busy using God to love myself. God, you you need to take care of my business. Get my children into a good school. Give me that girlfriend. Make that girl say yes to prom. Everything. Get rid of this acne. For God's sake, please, Lord, give me a car when I turn 16. We are too busy believing that the world owes us something. And we are using God to ensure a better life for ourselves. Until the day we recognize that we also are debtors, we will never truly and fully understand why or how any human being should love God. The only compelling reason to love him is because we owed a debt we could never pay and he released us. Just like that. He didn't extend our payment terms. He didn't lower the installments. He released us. He said, I will take you right now just as you are. The grumpy, stingy, bitter, complaining curmudgeon, the lust-driven sex addict, the angry, the jealous, the envious, the impure, the dishonest, the greedy. I will take you right now, the failure and mess that you are, and I will release you from having to repay the debt of your weakness and your frailty. That's the good news of the gospel. And if you met someone who actually did that for you at a moment when you understood how great your debt was, then you would love him. And you would love him in a way that is driven by gratitude, by joy. You know, there's something to be said about emotion in worship. I remember a story in the Old Testament, I think it's in 2 Samuel, where, um, it was 1 Samuel, David is dancing. And he's so exuberant, celebrating God and God's great favor and love upon him. And he begins doing a little strip dance. And by the end of it, he's half naked in front of all his people, including all his slave girls. And his wife's like, <laughs> yeah, that's a fine kingly behavior. And he says to her, you know what? I'm going to get even more undignified than this. You like this? How about this? And he's just, he's going, you know, when you're really caught up with God, who really cares what anyone else is thinking? When's the last time you felt that? I'm not talking about understood that. It's good to understand. But when's the last time you felt that? And let's not make this just about personality type. You are more than your Myers-Briggs, are you not? Can you never transcend your stiff wooden personality? Are there never moments where you just go, You know, that, 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 I, I'm not even Irish, I can't do it, but you hop up and clap your feet. Like, I remember the day I got into grad school, I made that, that kind of a gesture. I remember when I got back to Philadelphia after proposing to Jeannie, 
And I remember that she said yes, and I made that kind of a sound. It doesn't matter what kind of personality you think you have. You're capable of emotion. Maybe you've trained yourself to be emotionally constipated for so long, or maybe it's just that you keep forgetting just how exciting it is that God has released you. We we live in times when worship is something that has to be ignited or sparked. We need better and better music in order to draw us into singing praises to God. We need better and better preachers in order to keep us engaged during the sermon. I even use stuff like PowerPoint just so we have something yummy to look at while we're listening. And never mind, don't even try to get me to do those children's motions. I'm not having it. How many of you just refuse? You're just never going to do them. Yeah, I know. I know how you're... And in your heart, you're like, I probably should be able to do this for Jesus, my Savior. And if I guilt you, you know, he hung on a cross. Sorry, you can't do this, you know, for him. But I do them for a reason. My skin is crawling the whole time I'm doing it. And I'm always in the front just picturing everyone's not even looking at the screen. They're just looking at my back going, look at that dork. But I do it because I want to remember that I'm supposed to feel something. That this is a God that is worthy of more than just wooden acknowledgement. Don't you feel things when you watch a powerful movie? Don't you feel things when your child says their first word or you taste that first bite of steak that's been dry-aged for 30 days and it's Wagyu beef and you just, oh my gosh. I've actually gotten that emotional choked up eating a piece of meat. And maybe the reason we haven't felt that way about Jesus in so long is because we've forgotten who we are. We started to look at ourselves the way Simon looked at himself. I don't really need forgiveness. I'm okay how I am. I can accept myself. But do you know what it is to be a debtor? A debt is not something you can erase by yourself as the debtor. Try doing that with Visa. You know... I declare the year of Jubilee. I cancel this debt in the name of David Lee. See how Visa feels about that arrangement. A debt is not the kind of thing you have the power to cancel for yourself. To be free of your debt, you must be set free by the one who holds the debt. And until you understand that, you will never feel what you're meant to feel towards Jesus Christ. That's really what this story is about. Simon, you Pharisee, you know so much, but you know so little that if you strip away all the complication of Christian faith, it reduces to this simple thing. Jesus loves you. He has set you free from a great debt you can never repay. And everything else is just details. It is your response and your encounter with Jesus that lies at the center, the core of your Christian faith. There is nothing else in that center place. This is the foundation from which everything else grows. And that's why it is so critically important to get right how you see and think of yourself. Because the way you think of yourself 
will ultimately determine how you think of God himself. If you realize you're a debtor, you will see just how great God has been to you. But if you think that the world owes you something, then God will be the genie in the bottle. He will be the cosmic complaints department. He'll be the one who has to take the chip on your shoulder. How you see yourself defines how you see God. And in the end, all of that affects how we see each other. So my prayer for us that we will actually see ourselves the right way. And that none of us will ever outgrow this wonder that we should feel at being released from a debt we can never pay. And I know that for some of us right now sitting here, because the words are so familiar, you've heard that language of being in debt and being forgiven so much. Just bookmark it. And the next time you lose your cool, the next time you curse out of anger and despise another human being, the next time you cheat to get your way, the next time you look at someone who is not your spouse and your heart is filled with inappropriate desire, you remember that you are not nearly as debt-free as you might suppose most of the time. And it is precise in the moments of your greatest failure that the good news of the gospel can become the most profound thing in your life. Let's pray together. Even as I'm preaching the words, I am aware of how it sounds to my own ears. The words of indebtedness and release are so familiar in a way they've kind of lost that power. And whenever that happens to us about something, it's an invitation to go beyond casual thinking, to enter a state of real reflection. I don't think you're going to get the heart of this message just by sitting in a room listening to words come out of my mouth. I think for this message to really get through, you're going to have to take it home and chew on it for a good long while. Not just how you feel about my interpretation and my choice of words, but how do you feel about this very idea and the way that it reflects on you? When you think of yourself, what do you think? Who do you see? Are you obsessed with all the things people owe you? Are you the lender and the, the world your debtors? What do you see when you see yourself? When's the last time you felt what this woman felt in the presence of God? I just lost it. When's the last time a tear escaped your eyes because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ?
it has been a very long time, I believe this is God's invitation for you to stop running so fast and to stop, slow down and reflect. So why don't we do just that? Grant a couple minutes for us to be quiet before the Lord. And then we'll sing a couple songs and I'll come back up. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.